This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Coming up on Government Matters, fighting an information war with our adversaries, an inside look at how the Navy conducts electronic warfare operations and uses networks to get data to decision makers fast. And using mentorship to inspire the next generation of national security leaders, how mentors can shape the top talent of tomorrow. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Information warfare is about providing a decisive advantage for commanders during battle by allowing them to get from data to decision faster than the adversaries. Vice Admiral Kelly Ashback is the commander of Naval Information Forces. Admiral, welcome to the program. Good morning, Mimi. Thanks for having me here this morning. Can you first describe information warfare? What domains do you operate in and why it's important? Yes, Mimi, thanks. Uh, information warfare includes a number of specialties uh, with information-related capabilities. And so our portfolio includes the delivery of intelligence, communications, we handle cyber offense and defense. Uh, we also deal with oceanography and meteorology, electronic warfare, information operations, and space-related capabilities. So the breadth of the portfolio is very large, and it is critical, as you described, uh, in providing decision advantage for warfare commanders. Uh, we are a warfighting area in our own right and bring our own capabilities, but we are also essential to every mission area. Uh, aviation, surface, submarine, uh, in the Navy uh, can't operate without some aspect of what we deliver. And there's just been an ever-increasing demand for the capability we bring, particularly as it relates to the advantage we want to deliver in current competition, and frankly, keeping um, us in uh, competition phase as opposed to uh, ending up in conflict. But if we did end up in conflict, our capabilities would be vital to delivering uh, decisive uh, defeat. Can you give me an example actually of a scenario of how information warfare would be used and how it provides that decisive advantage? Certainly. Well, in the Navy, uh, we uh, use a concept called distributed maritime operations. And if you can imagine ships spread out uh, across the ocean uh, with aircraft operating in the air supporting them and perhaps submarines under the ocean, we are providing the resilient connectivity between all of those platforms so that they can effectively communicate. They can also provide battle space awareness to one another and have shared situational understanding of what's happening over large geographic areas. And most importantly, if they are called upon to deliver a uh, long range uh, weapons uh, capabilities, we provide the precise location information to ensure the weapons are most effective against the targets uh, that they might go after. The one other advantage we provide um, is a defensive advantage um, where we can provide a very critical warning of anything that might be targeting any of those ships, aircraft, or submarines, so they can maneuver rapidly and effectively uh, across the ocean and within the electromagnetic spectrum to protect themselves. And how have information warfare capabilities been integrated within the Navy itself? And then what are the efforts for integration with other maritime forces like the Marine Corps or the Coast Guard? Well, maybe we have a very, um, uh, healthy integration across the Navy right now. At the tactical level, we actually deploy information warfare commanders with our carrier strike groups. 
We also have positions with our amphibious uh, ready groups where we are closely integrated with the Marines and their Marine Information Group in delivering those capabilities for a combined naval force. And then we're running a pilot starting this summer with a submarine force where we are going to be including an information warfare officer as an integrated part of the crew in order to be more effective uh, in integrating the capabilities we can bring for them. At the operational level, the Navy has a maritime operational centers at all of its fleet commands where we are fully integrated. And we're certainly seeing in the current crisis with Ukraine at our sixth fleet command uh, out in Europe, uh, a very rich integration uh, and opportunity to test uh, further development of our information warfare capabilities as we support operations in that theater. So besides integration efforts, what would you say are your biggest challenges to ensuring the Navy can really meet the demand for information warfare? So maybe my uh, biggest concern right now, and it's probably a good problem to have, is that uh, we are just ever in ever-increasing demand. Uh, and I feel like the demand is frankly outpacing the personnel I have to deliver against the problem. And so we just can't deliver the right trained individuals fast enough. And so I am focused, my highest priority right now is improving our training, primarily through getting us into the Navy's live virtual training environment uh, and allowing a more uh, robust capability for us uh, to train individuals and also train as teams. And what are you doing to really address that as far as, I guess, it's recruitment and better training? Uh, it is. Um, we uh, Fortunately, uh, competition has been good for us in the Navy, and uh, we do not have difficulty attracting bright young talent. I think the key is you're mentioning there is we've got to provide the right training and skills so that they're most effective once we get them into the workforce and that their jobs are uh, rewarding. I think the live virtual constructive training would afford us the opportunity for our folks to actually train on real mission sets. Uh, much of what we do because it's in the electromagnetic spectrum uh, prohibits us from doing real testing and capability, uh, particularly since we don't want to reveal how good we are to the competition and having this discrete virtual environment would allow us to train discreetly and also allow us to gather data and metrics so we could be most effective in assessing how well our folks are doing uh, frankly with very complex capabilities that we continue to develop uh, and integrate as we go forward and how how far along have you gotten on that initiative um, and and where are you in that in the ability to train that way so on live virtual constructive, uh, we are in the first year of piloting our capability. We have eight events scheduled this year and we just did the third pilot last month. So we are making good progress in connecting our capabilities to the existing virtual environment. And then we also are looking to upgrade the integration of very highly classified information. And we were also successful last month in demonstrating how we're gonna do that going forward. There still remains work to be done, uh, but we're well supported by the Navy overall since we are vital to uh, training across all the mission sets and are hopeful that we'll prove out the concept uh, by the end of this year. All right, we'll take a quick pause here and then we'll come back. Coming next, I'll continue my conversation with the Commander of Naval Information Forces, Vice Admiral Kelly Ashback. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're talking with Vice Admiral Kelly Ashback, the Commander of Naval Information Forces. 
Admiral, you had talked about um, enabling offensive and defensive cyber warfare. What's your role in enabling that capability? Well, Mimi, in uh, Navy parlance or Department of Defense terms, I'm actually the force generator for cyber mission forces for the Navy. And so I'm responsible for ensuring that we're delivering folks who are properly uh, trained and have the right equipment. And we have two primary ways in which we're uh, providing cyber support. One is that we field, as part of the joint force up at Cyber Command, uh, Navy forces and Navy teams that support the overall national effort uh, to defend and also conduct offensive operations uh, for cyber. And then within the Navy, we also field the individuals who are doing the uh, first line defense for Navy networks and Navy capabilities. So we talked earlier about uh, integration within the Navy and then with other maritime forces. Talk to us about joint integration. So we have really been pursuing under the tri-service maritime strategy, uh, closer integration with both our Marine and our Coast Guard counterparts. And I actually have a warfighting development center that supports the development of tactics uh, and training uh, for the Navy. And we, you know, over the last two years, have invited the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard to participate in that. And they're full partners now in the development we're doing on creating warfighting uh, tactics instructors, where we actually develop subject matter experts across the various fields of information warfare and then we're also partnering with them and how we share execution across the mission areas in order to be most effective uh, with all of the resources we have across those three areas and I would say more broadly we also are actively engaged with the joint force uh, where we are talking to the Air Force and the Army about what we have done with information warfare what they're doing and how we learn from each other uh, both services have been particularly helpful as we try to mature how we're training from a cyber perspective in particular. And so there's some very effective partnerships uh, that are allowing, I think, all of us uh, to better pace uh, competition. And what's your role in the larger JADC2 effort? So for JADC2, uh, we are uh, prepared to support uh, implementation and training of elements that are going to be delivered under the Navy's uh, portion of JADC2, which is the Navy's operational architecture um, or project uh, overmatch. And what we're really trying to do there is, as I mentioned before, our success in distributed maritime operations is really creating a resilient web of connectivity that allows us to share share information, uh, sensor to shooter capability, and battle space awareness over a large force. Uh, and so we're standing by as that's developed to ensure that our folks know how to use the different capabilities as they're integrated, that we have the best training, and we're able to take care of uh, any of the equipment associated with that uh, capability. You know, I wonder what you've learned from watching Russia execute this war in Ukraine. I mean, how would you rate Russia's information warfare so far? Well, I have to be candid, Mimi, that I think they have uh, not performed as well as uh, they have performed in other areas in terms of dominating the information space. I think it's clear that uh, Ukraine and, frankly, the NATO alliance appear to have an upper hand, in my opinion, on uh, dominating and capturing the positive uh, narrative uh, and really conveying uh, the totality of what's happening uh, over there. But I would say the whole effort illustrates how vital information-related capabilities are and how they often are, are part of the leading edge and can be influential, frankly, in preventing uh, a conflict from growing beyond a certain scope, uh, in shaping and galvanizing an alliance and partnerships to come together in support of Ukraine, 
Uh, and so I think it's just underscored something uh, that those in my business already knew uh, that we've got to keep leaning in to deliver the best capability we can. You know, Russians are, of course, known for misinformation campaigns. Does that play any role in what you do as far as warfare and misinformation? So we do have responsibility for information operations, uh, where we certainly are trying to have a deep understanding of where our competition or frankly our enemies may be using or misusing information. Um, but we also, uh, within our uh, toolkits, have a dedication to uh, how we leverage uh, and promote facts and the truth. Uh, and so although we are working hard to dispel misinformation as it's uh, disseminated, we also are working on our, uh, hard on our side to ensure, ensure that we're uh, uh, disseminating a factual information. Is there anything you're seeing in this current crisis in Ukraine that would indicate a need to adjust any naval doctrine on information warfare? I don't know if I've taken any lessons uh, from that standpoint yet, Mimi. I do think uh, that for me, it just underscores that we need to accelerate everything that we're doing in terms of our training, the maturation of what we're trying to accomplish with the live virtual constructive piece, uh, and that we really can't uh, take our foot off the uh, gas pedal in terms of uh, trying to promote uh, the broadest understanding and the deepest expertise um, across the you know, largest number of people in information warfare. It plays such a critical role. And so I, I don't think it uh, has me uh, pausing on a doctrine we're pursuing right now. And if anything, I think it further validates a number of the things that we've been working on and really just creates more urgency for why we need to uh, continue to deliver um, faster and more effectively. And, you know, Admiral, it's been just uh, under a year since you assumed command of uh, Naval, uh, Naval Information Forces. What would you say has been your most important accomplishment so far? Oh, that's a great question, Mimi. It has been such a satisfying year here in charge of uh, Naval Information Forces. Um, I was incredibly honored uh, to be selected for this position. Um, and I think uh, for me, one of the most uh, satisfying aspects uh, has been the opportunity to lead across information warfare uh, and to work uh, with our people uh, to work on improving our diversity, uh, raising our game. Um, but I, uh, I, I just find it heartening every day that although we have some immense challenges for us uh, operationally, uh, I sleep well at night when I see the caliber of the folks that I get to work with every day. And it's such a tremendous team uh, that it is uh, yeah, daily rather humbling, frankly, to be in this position. All right, well, Admiral Ashback, so nice to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mimi. Stay with us for more Government Matters after the break. Most people recognize the importance of mentorship, but in the national security field, it can be especially critical to success. My guest has spoken and written about leadership and mentorship. Candace Frost is a colonel in the, U in the U.S. Army and a commander at U.S. Cyber Command. Candace, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about U.S. Cyber Command and what you do there? Absolutely, Mimi, and thanks for having me on your show. Cyber Command is a wonderful opportunity uh, for myself and many of us that are in the military to look at um, the critical Department of Defense information network and how we can both defend the network itself and then lead forward with, it with persistence engagement. Um, out in the world so that we can ensure that we're looking for malicious cyber actors that are trying to get on our networks and prevent that from happening. 
Now, how did you come to be so passionate about leadership and mentorship? I think coming into government and not knowing opportunities that were out there, there were several barriers that, that struck me when I started in the Army. Um, throughout the last 20 plus years, those barriers have been removed and I've seen an exponential growth of opportunities to bring all of, the all of our nation into government, especially women. So 50% of the population, we should be up to that same amount um, in the Department of Defense, and we're not there right now. So my efforts have tried to move forward and mentor women, especially in the cybersecurity field, into this space. So what challenges do women particularly face in the national security and the cyber field? I think the biggest challenge that they face is that just knowing the opportunities that are out there and realizing how much fun it is. I think because it's somewhat of a non-traditional job that is um, that is occurring right now that most women just don't see this as an opportunity for themselves. So through the academic engagement network that the United States Cyber Command has really pushed forward in 90 institutions, um, they're in 34 states and in 70 different universities conducting things like you know hacking for the defense um, looking at different opportunities to just speak and understand cyber policy we're opening doors in all different fields um, and it's going to be a great ride so you write that before finding a mentor um, a person should ask themselves why they want to mentor explain that exactly um, when you're looking at mentoring relationships it's that it is a relationship and it's a two-way street so some people will just reach out to others, whether it's on a LinkedIn platform or some other social media, and saying, hey, I'd like to talk, have a cup of coffee. But before even asking those questions, you should really ask yourself, what would I like to do in this field? What are the opportunities I'm seeking? Come prepared and then start to establish the mentorship relationship. You've also found that women are less likely to ask for a mentor. Why is that? Absolutely. I think a lot of times there's imposter syndrome that's at play and they feel like walking up to that line, they have to have so many different check the block, um, you know, different areas, you know, cert certification, things that they've already done that they don't necessarily need to have. And a mentor can show you how to get those done. So, what are the important characteristics you should look for in a mentor? I think the most important characteristic is openness and willing to learn and then kind of show you a path. Not necessarily the path that they've chosen, but something that they could open doors for a mentee. And that provides different opportunities and of course networking. And so what about on the other side? How are you, what are the ways that you can be a good mentor to other people? I think to be a great mentor, you have to mentor people that don't look like you, walk like you, and talk like you. You really have to open up your aperture to look at the people that don't necessarily line up and, and ask perpetually over and over and find people in different areas that you can start to bring into government. This country is very wide and large and not everything is in the national capital region. So looking across the entire country to bring people into this great field is a way a mentor, a mentor can find a great mentee. You know, mentoring takes time. It's a commitment. What's in it for the mentor? I think the biggest thing that's in it for the mentor is um, the, the joy that you have when you see a mentee cross the finish line. I have a great opportunity to go to a West Point graduation next month to see someone I've mentored for five years cross the finish line and grab her diploma. And it's a great feeling to be on the receiving end knowing I've committed time, dedication, and watch this person grow as an individual and she'll be a second lieutenant in our army very soon. Speaking of West Point, you went there. What led you in that path to go to West Point and to have this career? 
I had some uh, a great guidance counselor in high school that kind of walked me to that start line. I had no idea what I was getting into, but as soon as I realized what a joy it is to be a leader in our nation, I drank from the punch bowl and, and they got me. So the Army um, has displayed great capability to grow and modernize, and I've seen that in the last 20 years, and that's what led me to the cyber field where I am right now. And there's been no looking back, huh? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Colonel, thank you so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it 
because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.